Hey folks, this is Philip Neyman here with Rob High from CCW Safe. We're having a very special show for you today. Matter of fact, um, this show is so important. We're actually airing it also on my radio show this weekend at the same time. So we want to get this information out to you as early and as seemly and as easy to understand as possible. Joining us here, we have Gary Eastridge. Gary Eastridge and Rob High, both from CCW Safe, the critical incident uh, command center, basically, if you will. And one of the things today that we want to go over is are I should say what do you do after a critical incident now Rob maybe you should start with just defining what is a critical incident well for the purposes of what CCW safe carries it is a recognized self-defense incident <clears throat> and it, it's going to involve whatever level of force utilizing a firearm um you know that gary can tell you just as well as i can we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of successful uses of a firearm without ever firing a shot um and that could be the case in this instant instance as well um we have plenty of plenty of folks out there that because of age or physical limitations or um, numbers of attackers, anything else like that that plays into it where it brings you to that point where your only option, you you don't have an avoidance option in place. I, I can't move away from the threat. I can't vacate. Um, the surrender portion of this or the, the de-escalation portion of this is out of the question. Somebody has to, to display and beyond uh, and actually even make just a verbal notification. You know, step back. I don't want to hurt anybody, but I'm armed. I have a firearm. But we've talked multiple times about how many people in this world there are that that's that's not going to deter them from whatever act of evil that they're actively engaged in. But especially if I've displayed that firearm, pointed that firearm, or had to discharge that firearm. And if it's something that rises to the level of us bringing critical response team members out there, it's going to be something that results in significant bodily injury or death. You, is there something you want to add on that, Gary? I think that's kind of a big, wide open lane. Yeah, that's uh, a critical incident in, in general is, as Rob said, is an incident where somebody uh, has suffered significant injury or death. As far as our post-incident guidelines, it, there doesn't have to be injury or death. Uh, you know, there's still uh, criminal uh, repercussions for the actions, even if that firearm's not discharged. So it's very important that you establish um, that you are the victim and that uh, you you had to act in a lawfully correct uh manner 
because ultimately self-defense is a legal defense to what would otherwise be a crime. I can't strike you. I can't use force against you with certain exceptions, one of them being acting in self-defense. You know, you mentioned a couple of words in there, uh, brandishing and display. What is the mm -hmm. difference? The, depending on the state, the jurisdiction, uh, it, most states brandishing has more of a, uh, in my mind, more of a, uh, a, um, an illegal act connotation to it. Whereas display of the firearm is to display the firearm for a certain result. Uh, in many states to do so without legal justification can result in brandishing uh, charges. In some states, they don't use the term brandishing. They just charge an assault if you display your firearm inappropriately or illegally. So could it be an illegal display of a firearm if somebody, say, is carrying and they lifted up their shirt or moved their shirt or jacket to, you know, show somebody that, in fact, they did have a firearm? Yes, they it could be. They didn't put their hand on it, but just pulled That's, their shirt back. This is actually our most common claim, as as Rob can tell you. Uh, our most common claim is where a member uh, perceives a threat, takes the self-defensive actions to address that threat, the threat dissipates, and they immediately... Uh, the the other party immediately runs and calls nine one one and nine one one and says some of this crazy man or crazy person just uh, pointed a gun at me and that's why you know we advise members that if it's important enough to to pull your weapon whatever that weapon may be it's important enough to make a police report establish that what you did was legal. Um, in uh, in the act of self defense, you know, I did a I did a seminar for the uh, Inland Empire gun gun group here in Southern California, and one of the things we talked about was brandishing. You know, Rob and I talked about that ahead of time, and it's interesting people's conceptions of what they can do because we took a lot of questions from the audience, and you know. Some of the people were older and, and you could tell that, you know, they're afraid of getting jacked. You know, you get hit from behind, you fall on the curb, your, your life's never the same from the stupid sucker punch or let alone anything worse. And, you know, they were under the, uh, under the impression that you would, if, if a threat was coming toward you, you know, walking towards you, two or three guys that you could pull your firearm at a distance and tell them, stand back, I have a gun. And I was trying to persuade them that may not be the best idea at some points. I mean, that's something as, that you resonate into, right? As, as Rob can tell you from the cases and the claims that we've had, uh, there are, and this is one of the things we struggle when members say, can I pull my gun if this or that happens? Hypothetical questions do not have the details needed. Those details are going to determine if that act was justified. If somebody was at a distance, but they all had baseball bats and they're pointing at you and saying, we're going to get you, we're going to hurt you. Yeah, that may be a justifiable act. 
But if they're all wearing baseball uniforms and they're carrying their bats over their shoulder and you're just scared, that's probably not a justifiable act. So those details are going to determine. Uh, and sometimes, as we've seen in a lot of the high profile cases, those little subtle details are what make the difference between a uh, uh, a not guilty by self-defense and spending a significant time in prison. How do you how do you help people understand the difference between a perceived fear and a real threat? Rob? Oh man. Um, again, as a trainer for the police department, that's something you probably had to do quite a bit. It, it is. Um, I remember when I first became a firearms instructor, a question that my dad posed to me was, how do you, how do you teach them when it's okay to shoot? For me, that's always been a very simple, easy to understand answer and it was when I have no other options at my disposal that's the biggest thing there are many times and as a civilian I don't have the obligations to plug in and do things that I was sworn to do as a police officer there were times <laughs> you'd get somebody that just doesn't want to go to jail but we've not done anything to to escalate to it's an arrestable offense. And there, again, it's, it's like the things Gary was just touching on, the what ifs and determining factors. There are so many things that go into making that determination on whether or not that's good. You know, and, and, I, I hate to say it, it takes experience because that's not something you want to have a lot of experience in. But let's pick this up on the next segment here because I think this is really important for people to understand that your feelings may not matter in a court of law. It's going to be the facts of the case and what can be proved, right? Yeah. Hey, folks, welcome back to our podcast here. Philip Naiman with Rob High, CCW Safe, Firing Line Radio Show. We're having a good show here with a. a you know, kind of the, the heavy side, the responsibility side of carrying a firearm, and that's knowing when and where um, to use it. Uh, as Rob High just said, summarizing our, our last segment there was when he had no other option. You know, it's not the first option. It's when you have no other option. And Gary was about to make another point here uh, before I cut him off so ruefully there. But um, Gary, why don't you go on with that? You know, we, we get to ask these questions almost daily, you know, when can I, what, uh, you know, what has to be present before I can take actions? Can I shoot here? Can I not shoot? Well, there's not a handbook. There's not a book that says, okay, if they're nine and a half feet from you, you can't, but if they're nine foot, you can't. There's not a book that says go to chapter 10, uh paragraph one section c now you can shoot the, it just doesn't exist on top of that as you brought up in the in the last segment i'm 65 years old so a 
threat. I, I didn't bring up your age. That, that wasn't a personal thing. <laughs> well, it, it's starting to apply. And I have to accept that re, uh, reality that my mobility is not what it used to be. Uh, my vision's not what it used to be. I have limitations that are now can be factored in. Uh, you just um, had a shoulder surgery too. Just recovering from the, you know, the, Rob can tell you when you, we get a few miles on us and some of the things we've done in our career, you start paying for it. Things start wearing out. And I just spent five months recovering from a, a, a shoulder surgery. You talk about vulnerable. The, my normal mode of carry was out because uh, my my right arm was immobilized for for over a month, and then I had limited mobility for several months after that. So I had to switch to an alternative method of carry. I liked it, and his alternative method was a single point sling and an SBR. I thought that was a pretty good. <laughs> well, I had one of those, but I chose not to carry it. I switched to a J frame in my left hand pocket. Luckily, I when I train, I do train some offhand shooting, and and this brings up uh, another point in your in your training regimen. You need to factor in, what if I can't use that? What if it's my strong arm is disabled in in a, in a part of the uh, during a part of the um, the the fight or whatever. And then, you know, all of this is things that you have to take into consideration before you have to start worrying about the post-incident. You know, you have the things that are happening right now and how to respond to that. And then you have a whole set of things that you need to do after that, in the days after that, in the weeks after that. And uh, we've got some general guidelines on, on that subject. You know, one of the things you were saying is there's not a there's not a book that says, okay, if this, then that. I mean, somewhat, but not really. But even if, as we've seen, whenever there's stress in training or stress in an incident, um, if if there was a rule book that said these, you know, these four things must be present in order to do this, you wouldn't remember what the four things were. You'd say, okay, there's one of them, or, or there's three, or, or, geez, where's the sixth thing? You know, because of the stress involved in that kind of a situation, trying to go through some kind of a checklist is going to be a negative for you anyway. You're going to fail. You're not going to remember it, or you're just going to get it wrong. Yeah. Most people, I mean, don't nobody trains with that kind of uh, abilities. And that's why I believe it's it's important to kind of keep that simple as possible. Uh, you know, uh, some offer very in-depth and detailed response to, on things to do. There's really about four or five things that you need to con you need to concern yourself with. But one of the other things you touched on, I believe, in the last uh, uh, section, and one of the things that I highlight in my presentation is perspective. Just because you see things one way, Rob may see it totally different. Uh, just because since there isn't a book that defines what a reasonable belief or threat is, um, uh, you, your perception may be that you acted when you had to my perception and the people who may well set on a jury judging your actions 
their perception may be totally different. Yeah, that's that's absolutely perfect. Um, for the for the context of the information that we want to want to press out today, though, let's let's address this like something happened to you, um, carjacking, and the guy's got knife, bat, pole, whatever, even a firearm that maybe you could get to yours prior to them engaging. Um, there's, there's so many things about facing somebody that's armed. And if they are failing to heed verbal warnings and things like that, Everything has gone as bad as it can possibly go, and you have to discharge that firearm. Whether you strike them, whether you injure them, whether you mortally wound them, whatever the case may be, our responses, once it goes to that extreme, are the same. It just is. Uh, and the very first thing is to make certain that I'm safe, that my loved ones are safe, that nobody else is under e extreme threat at that time. The threat has been concluded one way or the other. They ran away, they they dropped and quit the attack, they're injured, or as I said, they're they're mortally wounded. So step one for us is is establishing that. The threat is no longer a threat. And that comes also with making the determination that there's he's not acting in concert with somebody else. So I want to make certain that we've truly come to a at least a pause in the incident. Um, is, there, is there a piece you want to add there, Gary? No, I, I think that's, you know, establishing that everything is, that threat is gone, that that threat has been neutralized either by them fleeing or you taking lethal force action. Uh, that's number one is to assess that the threat's gone and you and you, your loved ones, whether they be your friends or your, or your family are safe. Where would you go next, brother? Uh, you know, the, the, the next step is calling 911, and this is where things have the potential to get tricky. Uh, 911 conversations are not privileged. They can be used against you in the court, uh, in, in a court of law. Wait, 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 mind, wait, 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 wait. They can be used against absolutely. you in a court of law? Or they a lot of people, will be used against you Absolutely. I, I don't think I, I, I spent my last seven years in the homicide unit. I don't think I, I, any call that was made by a participant in the incident, we listened to in the court during the prelim and during the uh, trial. So it's absolutely admissible. Uh, and, there, and there never was a case you didn't 
do it. So it, it whatever is said, we've talked about this before a lot, uh, Rob and I, and you, uh, whatever said of the 911 is going to come back and it's going to come back 18 months, two years after the fact, after all the news stories have happened and uh, to, to a jury who's had a fat breakfast and a couple of cups of coffee and they're not worried about anything when they hear your call. Right. So that's important factors to think about. Let's take a break right here and we'll come back right after this. Welcome back to the CCWSA podcast for this next segment. We're, we're doing a co-production today with Fire and Long Radio. Uh, my normal co-host here is Phil Naiman and my partner in crime, Gary Eastridge, is with us. And we're discussing those issues post-incident, post-critical incident, and how to, how to respond. Obviously, we started with making certain that the threat is no longer a threat in how, whatever regard. And then secondly, to making that 911 call. And Gary was touching on some points about that. And we were getting into kind of into the weeds a little bit about in very significant cases, that this call is going to be played in the courtroom. It's going to be played at the preliminary hearing. It's going to be played in front of a jury at jury trial. It's, it's going to be a piece of this packet. Something that, that a lot of people don't understand is that first reporter, the first person that calls 911 is many, many, many times looked at as the victim in this thing. Now that can change very quickly depending on evidence at the scene and, and statements from bystanders or witnesses or whatever. And what we would train, because in law enforcement, we've talked about this on other shows, those guys usually are afforded two sleep cycles before they have to give a formal statement because we understand what that trauma response is and, and that things are not going to be exactly well thought out. It's, it's going to, you know, incidents get reported out of sequence. And if you don't understand how, how trauma responses are, you don't understand that that's really a very normal phenomenon. And we, on previous shows, we've touched on the fact that as Gary and I would respond to an officer-involved shooting, we're immediately responding to him or her as the victim in this thing. When we respond to anybody else's shooting, we are strictly there to investigate a crime. So Gary had touched on the point earlier that this, this is a lawful way to do something that anything else, any other deployment of that level of force would be a criminal act. It has to be something that you can prove that this is the reasons why I did it. So that, oh, that you know, uh, on, on that part that you're hitting on right there, let's explain why, because maybe not everybody's heard that if you, about if you do choose self-defense, what you're really saying in a court of law. It's, it's, an, it's what's called an affirmative defense. You're admitting that you took the action. 
I shot that person. Well, shooting someone is a crime with certain exceptions, one of those being when acting in self-defense. So you have to establish that. But by, by it being an affirmative defense, you've just crossed the first threshold that, the, that a prosecutor has to prove, that you're the one responsible for the injury or death of the other person. So you've just admitted it. So if that jury's perspective is then that you didn't act in self-defense, now it's back to a criminal uh, matter. And if they find you guilty, there's tremendous consequences. So, and, and you and you can't you can't plead not guilty and then come back with self-defense. Yeah, I didn't do it, but if I did, I acted in self-defense. Most judges will not allow that uh, in a court of law. Part of the part of the things that that I would personally want out there, whether it's on the nine one one call or to the very first, and actually I would keep that nine one one call very very brief, very brief. And I've been assaulted. I had to defend myself. I shot this guy. He's still here. I need medical response and police. This is my location. This is what I'm wearing. I've secured my firearm. That's really enough. I, I really don't need to go into the full details of, of anything else that, that occurred right then. As a, such a critical thing that, that's occurred, you're going to see first responders coming in a little heightened. We know that I'm coming to a scene where there is at least one gun that's been in play and somebody's been injured to some extent with that firearm. So I don't want to be the guy that, that's sitting there pointing a gun at everybody as the first responders show up. I know how that goes. I know how, how I react to that. I know how almost every cop I've ever been around reacts to that. I don't want to get shot because I had to defend myself. So we're going to take that out of play. Um, even then as the investigator, even well, not investigator is going to be an hour later, but uh, as the patrol guys roll up and they, they see that you're the one and you're telling them, um, I was a victim. He attacked me. Uh, I, I was, a, I didn't have any other options. I, I wish this had never happened, but I shot him, whatever the case may be. Which is one of the real critical points too, to where, especially you have to consider you've, you've just experienced the most traumatic thing you probably will ever experience. The average person will go their life and never have that. If they do, one of the one of the habits that are human, uh, almost a human trait, is you want to tell somebody. So it's real easy at that point to just go off and start talking, talking societal ills, everything you think led up to this, politics, whatever. That's not the time. This is the time to express, uh, hey, uh, I'm just I'm too shook up to talk right now. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. 
Unfortunately, people get what my dad used to call constipation of the brain and diarrhea of the mouth. And once they start talking, they can't stop talking. And I can tell you from firsthand experience as a homicide investigator, if I can wind you up and let you start talking, there's been a lot of people talk themselves right into prison. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, you know, obviously we're talking about the people who were innocent here and had to defend their lives, but the effect on your body, your adrenaline dump, you know, the fight or flight syndrome, you get so much of that in your bloodstream and then it takes 30 to minutes to an hour to come out. So just about the time everybody starts asking you these questions, I'm sure when you were doing your interviews, you saw this, that person's physically like shaking, you know, their, yeah. their body has these little convulsions as it's going back to a normal state and it's very emotional and it's, you know, it's, it's a traumatic event to go that hard into the adrenaline curve. And then as your body works its way back out of it, if you've never seen that or aware of it before, you know, that's, that's when they just want to, they just want to hug you and say, uh, tell you the whole story as an investigator, right? And, and the other downside to that is as that adrenaline bleeds off and you, you return to that normal state, anybody that's been in a competitive match can tell you com that once that adrenaline bleeds off, you get, you, you, you become almost exhausted. And we saw that in one of the cases of a member we defended uh, who was charged with murder following what we believed and the jury agreed with us was a clear-cut self-defense case. Well, by the time they took uh, our member to the, uh, to the police station and left him in a room for two hours after being through this super intense three separate attacks incident, he gets in the uh, interview room and almost goes to sleep. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement then, talking about perspective, saw that as a sign of, look how calm he is. Well, anybody that's been involved in a, an incident can tell you that once that adrenaline bleeds off, you're absolutely exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big deal. Now, I know that we're, we're sitting here talking about limiting my engagement, my communication. There are... Other things, though, that I do need to make known, and Gary can tell you that once we, we show up and work a scene, when we leave, it it's no longer an evidence. It It's just gone. I can't recreate my evidence. I can't recreate my scenes. So... Let's, let's, let's bring that up on our next segment here, because that's a great point, Rob. Yeah. We'll be right back after this, folks. Welcome back. Uh, as we were cutting away to break, we were talking about uh, things that can't be recreated. Uh, evidence is one of those. If I don't identify certain things that are present at the time that the officers are, they may not comprehend the value of what, what that stuff was. So Gary, um, you've been involved. Mm -hmm. You have a guy that is deceased. Law enforcement shows up. You've given just the bare minimum. This is who I am. This happened to me. I had to defend myself. Are you finished? 
No, it's uh, it's it's. It, it, I encourage. There's some there's some line of thought that says absolutely say nothing to law enforcement. I think that changes and shifts that perspective. Uh, what I'm going to want to do is express my willingness to cooperate. Uh, what Rob's touching on there is what we call in law enforcement a public safety uh, statement, and that is things that are will be pertinent to that investigator and the evidence technicians that they may miss if I don't tell it. Uh, if that person threw their weapon and it went into some shrubberies 15 yards away, I'm going to say uh, he threw his weapon over there. I think it went in those shrubs. I'm also going to let law enforcement know it was just him or it was him and four others. They ran that direction. They ran down that street. Uh, just those little things. Uh, you're now establishing that you're the victim, but the trick, or the, I shouldn't say trick because it's not a trick. The balance is to not go into detail while you're in that very heightened traumatic state. Uh, express that cooperation when they, naturally the officers, if you answer any question, they're going to ask more questions. And there you have to politely and keeping things focused on you as a victim expressed to them. I'm just, I'm too shook up. I need my representation. I need to uh, relax, which may, or uh, I say may, it, it very well could end up you being detained for an evening or two. Yeah. Well, and one of the surefire ways to get yourself detained is Gary's the, the responding officer and I'm standing there given this this safety statement and then he says well what else can you tell me about you know what started this anything else and all of a sudden i just go I'm not saying another word till my attorney's here hmm. what what's probably your next step there gary the bracelets yeah I'm unless the evidence is compelling yes. unless there's a witness who can say yeah i saw that person attack rob uh all i have to go on is the fact that i have a person who is shot and a person with a gun who says i'm not telling you what happened so here's here's a situation because i'm speaking as a civilian who's one of your clients right the ccw carriers nationwide are like the best the, the most law-abiding right they don't realize that as an officer Every single person you talk to is lying to you the entire shift. You haven't heard one truthful thing the entire day. So although they're standing there telling you the truth, they don't understand why, why aren't you believing me? Because mm -hmm. you've been shellacked 10 coats thick with lies all day long and you, you can't sort them out. You're going to have to take them downtown with his attorney. They can sort it out there because there's no, there's just, too much stuff that happens on the streets. And I know, I know plenty of attorneys that will tell me that, that my client's not making any statements. Um, man, I, that's a, that's a red flag for me. I, I, you know, at least let's, let's work this out and give me a time that we can get together and talk with you being present. 
I never had an, any issue with an attorney being present in an interview, not ever. People think that's a deal. There may be somebody I didn't care for on a personal term, but as far as the business end of things, they were doing their job and I was doing mine. Now, Gary put it really, really nice earlier when he was talking about, I, I, this happened to me. These are the things involving this. He threw the gun over there. Um, I think I should stop now. I'm, I'm really, really shaken up. I'm, I'm having just this huge adrenaline dump. And I'm telling you, you don't got to tell them that, but it's one of those that I am, I am really not thinking very clearly right now. I'm really, I'm really very emotional over this. And just for my own protection, I, I, I want to give you full cooperation but I'm going to, I'm going to wait until my attorney is present to uh -oh. do that together. I'd even say something like, I hope you understand, because I assure you oh, that officer, skipped out here. Um, what he was saying is he wanted to be able to protect himself. Just cut out on us, Phil. Anyway, moving on. Um, the incident occurred even, let's say everything went just perfectly and we're gonna go in and the officers, the, the investigator says, yeah, not a problem, you do your thing. Um, he gives his business card to the attorney or gives it to me and says, give, give this to my attorney, have him call me, we'll set up a, a time to make a statement and, and go over this. So beyond that, there's still things that I want to be very, very protective of. And that's still my story. You know, it's, it's one thing, Gary and I work side by side every single day. And unless he's actually involved working, working my incident, it's not the time for me to go, dude, you won't believe what happened to me yesterday. Yeah. Keep that to yourself. That includes family. Um, I really need to, to lock myself in a bubble until that interview has been conducted and we've gone over everything. And even at that, I don't want to get a whole lot of things out there. We all know we've seen the, we've seen the little tests where you start on this end of a, of a classroom and somebody whispers in the first guy's ears and gives him a little, a little blurb and he has the requirement to pass it all the way down to the other end and how jumbled and distorted that becomes by the time it's gone around a classroom. And, and those, those people and those people that don't understand the fifth amendment don't realize that if you're talking, there are only a handful of privileged conversations. Your, your attorney, uh, your spiritual guide, uh, uh, spiritual what am i trying to say mentor and and your spouse if you tell your brother what happened you've just made your brother a witness yes. and your brother can be uh subpoenaed oh. to court and unlike you your brother can be forced to say what you told him yes uh that that fifth amendment is strictly for you 
and it it doesn't extend to witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. The next the next thing I would I would do on that is is really strongly encourage you to avoid the media. Um, I I'd turn off the news. I would limit my my social interactions. I don't, I want to keep, I w- that's when I want to bring my bubble in. Close your Facebook page. Yeah. And, and that's exactly where we were going is um, shut down all of your social media stuff and don't look at it. You're going to get so spun up over the, the things that idiots out there are saying about what they think you've done. And there's nothing in it except for heartache you know it's just it's just gonna wear you out because it's like holy crap phil said this and and he knows i'm not that kind of guy it you don't know how this stuff is gonna blow up and rumors are just that and they're vicious there's nothing good that comes from them so just shut that stuff down you gotta you gotta do those things for for self-protection there are so many things that can be done um even pre-incident, you know, Gary and I have spoken on this before, you know, there's all kinds of little cutesy memes out there and you, you get the guys, we get comments all the time on our newsletters or podcasts or whatever, where somebody's like, I'd rather be carried by, you know, or I'd rather be tried by 12 and carried by six. I'd rather not have any of it come up. I'd rather just walk away freely and be, healthy and whole and happy and, and live my life. And so. that's, that's, that's the way we've got to be folks. I want to thank my special guests, Rob high and uh, uh, Gary Eastridge, CCW safe. Uh, they're the best people to have on your team, but I hope you never have to meet them. So have a great week and we'll be, we'll be back next week. Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye Gary. guys. Hey, hey, um, I've got, if you want to continue your thought, they could cut that out for your podcast and, continue i just had to jump off the the show on that part you if you want to do that rob if you want to do any more because you were on a roll i hate to jump on that I'd, I'd like to follow up a little more on that social media because it's uh that's one of the things i'm i kind of uh, monitor our social media accounts for comments and it amazes me what people say on an open forum on facebook about what they would do that so. is not pre- yeah what let's let's just pick it right back up then yeah you know as as we're moving forward um we'll continue this in discussion regarding allowing access into our lives into our incident that are going to be detrimental um we do it we don't even think about it it's it's amazing the things that pick things up these days. I had a uh, discussion with Gary and some of the, the guys from the office yesterday, and we're just discussing the viability of a J frame pistol. Great little, great little gun. It's concealable. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, It's just something that helps us Um, and we get into other things and 
all of a sudden I looked down at my phone and I, I told Justin today, I said, all of a sudden I've got this, this message that pops up and it's a sale on J frame revolvers. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the things that are, that are going to blow up, but I can tell you, I'm, I'm investigating. And one of the first things I do is it's like Philip Naiman, blah, blah, blah. This is where he's from. And I pass that off to our analyst and they dig into your life. So all those data mining. Yeah. All those stupid things that I thought were just funny. I didn't mean them, but they, you know, they were funny these things are being used against me. Go ahead. You. I, I was going to say, I've got a couple of examples. We just ran a, uh, a newsletter on uh, aftermath and, you know, to, about needing support in the aftermath. It sparked a lot of comments. One guy uh, talked about, uh, I don't need anything. I've got a backhoe and a, a hole already dug, implying that he's going to bury the body. And then that was followed up with, comments that said no body no crime well i assure you that's incorrect and if you were legally justified in your shooting you've just made it a, cr a crime by your actions um by not bearing. only that <laughs> even if it's an offhand remark or joke you can bet you're going to get to explain that in court the thing is a lot of times your attorney's not going to let you explain it he doesn't want to put you on. So that statement's got to stand on what it is. What does that show? It shows you have a disregard. You're callous towards taking a life. That could be that little thing that pushes that jury over the edge to find you guilty. Yeah. One of the, one of the other things, and pretty much every one of them I've ever worked with across the table as they're they're working a defense um i don't think i've ever been around an attorney that that did not give the sage advice of what to do moving forward for their clients and i can say that from working on the civilian side as well working in the defense of people Take that as gospel. When, when your attorney says, listen, I want you to do these things. I want you to stop doing these things. Whatever that advice is, is lessons learned over time. And he's given that advice for a reason because he's had to go fight the fight after somebody has done whatever that is that he's, he's imploring you not to do. Um, so follow that advice. Keep Keep that circle really small. Protect yourself from the, the things that spin out of control that become just absolute lies. But we've all seen those things. You know, it was one of the biggest obstacles in the George Zimmerman case was all that stuff blew up. And then he was not intelligent enough to, to refrain from jumping in front of cameras and giving statements and and that stuff is it it just gets used and spun all the way out of control you know as don west can tell you we've had all kinds of things pop up with uh, you know they're they're giving facts 
in the courtroom and outside the courtroom, you still have people that are, that are thinking, you know, he did this, he did that, that, you know, the dispatcher told him to do this and this is what he did instead. And those things were all lies. They didn't right. see how that, that case proceeded at all. So if I, if I avoid all those things, I don't have to worry about defending all those things.